0: This episode is brought to you by the Denver Public Library. This season is all about women writers who are working to create community impact. We think elevating the work of these writers is so important that we've partnered with one of our favorite community resources, our local library system, Denver Public Library to be exact. And whether you're in Denver or someplace else, the library wants you to know that they're still here providing vital community resources. The Denver Public Library works to foster a culture of exploration, innovation, and forward thinking, and is focused on creating a strong community where everyone thrives. Head over to denverlibrary.org to access the latest virtual events and resources and find some of the great books by many of the talented authors we've had the pleasure of featuring this season. Hey, it's Tanji Renee. Before we get to the show, I'm popping in to quickly ask for a huge favor. If you're a fan of this show, we could really use your support. We have a big goal of growing our listenership this season, and we could only do it with your help. Please take a few seconds to subscribe to this podcast. Look at your phone right now and hit subscribe. Next, if you're listening on an app like Apple Podcasts that allows you to leave a review, please give us a five-star review. Reviews actually go a really long way in helping our show get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to go the extra mile, leave us a written review in addition to the five stars. That helps even more. This show has grown because of the incredible support of our listeners, and we have an ambitious goal of getting to our next 10,000 downloads this season. We can't reach our goal without your help, so please subscribe rate this podcast, and don't forget to keep sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. Just hit share from wherever you're listening. That's it. Easy peasy. Thanks in advance for all your support. Smooches! Hey friends and inspiration junkies, welcome back to That's What She Did podcast. This is season six and episode two, the She Wrote That Season, where we're talking to women writers across genres who are doing really inspiring work. I'm super happy to introduce you to our second writer of the season, Nicole Vick. Nicole D. Vick has spent the last 15 years providing tools and strategies to stakeholders, community-based organizations, and residents to improve health and prevent disease in some of Los Angeles County's most underserved communities. Now, a college professor, community activist, and public health advocate, Nicole recently published her first book, A Memoir, called Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. In it, she shares both the heartbreaking pain and the extraordinary triumphs that led her to advocacy and social justice work. Her story takes place against the backdrop of a long neglected and overlooked community of South Central Los Angeles, where she grapples with the grotesque imbalance of power and privilege as it unfolds in every aspect of her life and those around her. Her story is inspiring. It's a story about triumph and purpose, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's jump in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That's What She Did. We are deep into the She Wrote That season, where we are bringing you the voices of incredible authors across all genres that you probably don't already know. And we want you to get to know their work, the incredible impact that they're having in the world. And that's why I'm super excited to introduce you to Nicole Vick. She is the author of this incredibly great self-published book called Pushing Through, Finding the Light in Every Lesson. And I've been so happy that I got the opportunity to get to know your work, Nicole, and read the book. I love your story. I think you have a lot of important things to say, and I'm excited to have you here today. Welcome. Thank you, Tangia. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, and I'm so excited to be here today. I'm so excited to have you, and you know, I'm so happy that you actually pitched me to be on the show. You said, sent an email, you found out that we were looking for authors, and you sent an email and was like, here's all the reasons why you need to know about my book. And I was reading your email, and I was like, it sounds like I really need to know about this book. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that because I want to send a message to other listeners of this show. Every season, I ask listeners to pitch themselves. You want to be on the show, you got a story to tell, you're doing something impactful in the world, pitch the show. And not often does it happen. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot of fear. Or when I do get a pitch from someone that's a listener, it's very apologetic. It's very like, you're probably not interested in me. I'm sorry, but I did this thing. And maybe if you're interested, and I'm like, girl, no, (laughs) tell me your story. So thank you for doing that. (laughs) I am big
1: on. One of the things I say a lot is nothing beats a failure, but a try. Absolutely. So whether I am applying for a promotion or, you know, pitching up a podcast, I'm like, the very least that I can do is put forth my best effort and try. And if I don't try, the answer is always no. And people always say that, but it's true. If you don't put yourself out there, the answer will always be no. So
0: why not at least try and see what happens? Absolutely. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to quote you, nothing beats a failure, but a try. Like it. (laughs) Yes. Now I didn't make it up though, but I sure do use it. (laughs) Doesn't matter. You're getting credit for it here. (laughs) You know, when you sent me your book, I got a chance to read it. You have An inspiring story. Before we get to there, before we get to the book, you know, you are an activist, you're a community leader, very active in social justice issues. Tell our audience how you came to that place. You know, I like to say it's in my blood. My great
1: grandparents were you know, around back in the day. My great grandmother was born in 1898, right? And I know she came to Los Angeles in the nineteen thirties with my great grandfather. They were business owners. My grandfather is a firefighter, well was a firefighter. He's passed away, but he was a firefighter back in the nineteen forties and actually integrated a fire station here in Los Angeles. My aunt was a commissioner for many years and advocated for people with disabilities. And so I feel like in a lot of ways it's kind of in me to really be a public servant to be interested in helping other people. But I guess more precisely, I came into this work through a series of things. My life experience, I was a teen mom. I was a a little black girl from South Central LA, trying to go through USC and, and, and really trying to struggle with who am I in this space? And then there was this work experience I had. I I was a student worker at a county STD program. So I'm answering the phone, giving information and resources to people with sexually transmitted disease. And I was like, wow, this is really cool line of work. And so public health became a thing that I was really, really very interested in just from that one experience. And again, I was able to then, as I moved through my career, understand how all those things impacted me and kind of pushed me into public health. So I think public health found me. I I didn't find it. It kind of found me.
0: As is often the case when there's something that you're supposed to be doing, right? You don't think about it. And then all of a sudden, here you are doing it. Right? Right. I mean, that's how this podcast happened. I tried to convince somebody else to start this podcast before I started it. Wow. (laughs) See? See? <laughs> it kind of finds you. <laughs> and you can't do anything about it. You just submit like, okay, I'm here. <laughs> yes, exactly. So in your book, you talk about how you came to learn about public health. And that was definitely a catalyst moment for you. But prior to that, you talk about basically not knowing what you didn't know, right? That you are a young Black woman, quote unquote, in the hood, living like the hood identity, and that's all that you knew. And there was sort of a moment when you decided, I'm not just going to be the statistic that everybody thinks that I am. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah. And I think it's specifically in relation to that teen pregnancy, I think was really that, well, you know, I could go one of two ways, right? Or or things could happen in any number of ways. I was very young. I was about 17, 18 years old and found myself pregnant and trying to figure out what to do. And I always think back like, wow, if I had not had the support of my family, even my daughter's father's family, I could have been in any number of very negative or very bad situations. And so, yeah, I think that was the decision at that point. Like, this is not going to be my reality and I'm going to choose as much as I can differently. One of the things that I've learned in public health in my career, I've been in public health for 15 years is that oftentimes people's choices are limited by the opportunities in their communities. So even if you want to do better, even if you know better, oftentimes the resources and structures and things in your community actually keep you from doing what you wish to do for yourself something as simple as eating better if your grocery stores in your neighborhood don't have fresh fruits and vegetables that are affordable how easy is it for you to try to make those kinds of choices so one of the things i often talk about to people is that even if you know that you want to do better It can be hard to do if your community doesn't have the resources to sort of propel you in the right direction. The reality is that in a lot of these urban communities, like the one I grew up in, the resources just aren't there. And it's not an
0: accident that they're not there. Hey there, my fellow inspiration junkies. Do you miss browsing shelves for books, movies, and music? Denver Public Library is still here for you, offering these great resources both online and curbside. Tell Denver Public Library what you like to read or what you're craving, and they'll send you a whole entire personalized reading list with five to eight customized recommendations just for you. You can even place holds of up to 10 items that you can pick up curbside at most locations. How's that for convenience? Need a library card? no worries register for an e today and immediately access hundreds of e-media resources like ebooks audiobooks music movies and so much more and yes it's all still free i'm not ashamed to admit that i am totally a library junkie and you can call me a nerd if you want to honey i'll take it denver public library branches will be reopening soon So make sure you check out denverlibrary.org for the latest info. And don't forget to follow Denver Public Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Smooches! Listener perks alert! I'm excited to tell you about Libro FM. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you get the same audiobooks at the same prices as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story—one that supports community. For every purchase you make on Libro.fm, a local bookstore of your choosing gets half the profits it's a super simple way to shop local right from your own phone if you're new to audiobooks they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life listen while doing chores walking the dog or just relaxing at home all you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app you already love audiobooks and you don't know what to listen to next, check out the recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of That's What She Did podcast can get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Who doesn't love a BOGO? I know I do. Go to Libro FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M and enter code SHEDID. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Now, how's that for a listener perk? You talk about, I think it's in the foreword of your book, the moment when you walked into a training. It was the, I guess, the watershed moment. It was like the aha, where you're like, what the hell is going on here? I thought that was one of the most, you put it right out there in the beginning. It was one of my favorite parts of your book, of your entire story. So tell us a little bit more about that moment. You walk into this training for, for what was it, equity? (laughs) It was a racial equity training. And again, At this point, I've been in this
1: work for about 12, 13, 14 years. So it wasn't even brand new concepts that I was Mm -hmm. hearing. But for some reason, I'm sitting in this space and it's hitting me different. It felt different. So I walk into this race equity training because in public health, we are starting to really think about racism as a public health issue. It's been an issue for a long time, but we're really thinking about how do we deal with this from a public health perspective? Because we know that race and racism has an impact on people's health. Okay, so that's the kind of background. So I walk into this training and we sit down, we're in this auditorium, and I'm you know, it's about a hundred people in the room, and I'm like, Okay, here we go. And the facilitator starts, and you know, they do their spiel, they have the PowerPoint slides up, and then there's this slide that comes up, boom, and it says, more or less, blacks fare worse in every single system in society. And I'm like, here we go. here we go with this conversation again. And to be clear, I'm not saying here we go as in, oh Lord, the information is not inaccurate. So what the slide said was Blacks fare worse in every single system in society. And it had things like education, right? Our high school graduation rates are pretty low. Our third grade reading level rates are low. We're overrepresented in the criminal justice system. We're overrepresented in the homelessness issue. We get higher mortgage rates when we try to buy homes. All that stuff is not new to me, but for some reason, in, in that moment, it hit differently because I think for the first time, I really saw the collision of my academic knowledge, that public health experience and expertise that I have, my lived experience, the teen mom, the Black woman in, in living in South Central, and just like, this is a lot. This is a lot. And I'm in this space, in a professional space. I'm supposed to be acting professionally, but I'm angry and I'm sad at the same time. And so I'm looking around the room. I'm looking, I'm making eye contact with people that I know and respect. And we're both giving each other that look like, how do we fix this? How do we move forward? So that, that was the moment where I decided that I need to do something about this. And I immediately did what most people do. They go right back to their desk after the meeting and have that either phone conversation or email with your work colleagues. Like, did you see that slide in that meeting? Oh my goodness. And one of my friends said something so profound. She said, the problem is when they see numbers, we see faces. And she's right. I immediately thought about the people in my neighborhood and the people that walk up and down the street and the homeless people and the senior citizens. I thought about my family. Those numbers on that slide represent actual people. And that's kind of where I went. I went straight to the heart like, man, how do we fix such a
0: big problem in our communities? That yeah, that was a moment. I'm telling you, that was something else. I think that that story resonated so much for me because it took me to a, a moment I had. <laughs> wow. I for me, it was in college. I So my major was a political science. That's what I got my undergrad in. And we talked about... I guess we talked about race sort of in an abstract way. We talked about it a lot, right? But it wasn't, to your point, it wasn't faces. It was numbers. Talked about that a lot. And then I took a class called Race, Gender, and Justice, which was considered an elective of the political science department. It was not a required course. Wow. And it was taught by a judge who was a Black man. And it was such a huge moment for me sitting in that class and we were i remember we were talking about adoption and the problems in adoption and how racism shows up very clearly very directly wow. in the adoptive system in this country and i remember that moment thinking i thought i understood race dynamics in America. Because I'm a woman of color, I'm half black, I'm half Latina, I have of course experienced racism, but it Mm -hmm. took it from my individual experiences and made it my community. And I could see real people and I could, you know, sort of that same kind of experience. (laughs) And I was like, what the hell is going on here? I was so angry. (laughs) The bad part
1: about it is depending on where you are, you can't be outwardly angry right? because you're in a space. I mean, I literally, in my example, was sitting next to two of the executives in our office. I can't be outwardly angry, Mm -hmm. even though under my breath, I'm like, what the hell? And I had to keep it together,
0: right? You're at work. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Yeah. And there's a moment to your point that you realize that it's not an accident. It was on purpose. Even though abstractly, you might sort of kind of get it. But when you bring in, you know, this professor, he was an excellent professor. He brought in real-life speakers that could tell these stories, and he made us go out and do equity testing. And so he did this test with us where we had, we're in Denver. Denver is a huge sports town. Like, we have every major sport here. It was that year... The final four was in Denver, I think. I'm pretty sure it was the final four. And so he made us one night of (laughs) the basketball tournaments go out onto the street in front of the Pepsi Center where the game was held and pretend to be homeless and ask people for help. And, you know, we were a class of mixed races, white, Asian, everything and see what happens and was there a difference based on race and gender and all of the white people got money and all of the people of color didn't get nothing wow (laughs) It was crazy and he made us do a lot of real life testing like this in different scenarios. It was so like punch you in the face. It was like such a gut check that yeah. you can't unsee it. You can't ever unsee it again ever. Yeah. Yeah. So that moment really stood out to me in your book, but I think what also stood out about your story and the way that you tell your story is that there's a very clear distinction between surviving and thriving. In a system that is not meant for you to thrive in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there have been so
1: many examples of that for me. One of them, of course, probably the first one is at USC, right? And I always talk to people about USC. I'm like, USC, I grew up like five minutes away from USC, University of Southern California. Used to go grocery shopping with my family across the street from USC. USC was always a presence in my life growing up, but it always felt a million miles away. And then wow, I applied to USC and I get in and I'm in there but I also don't feel of, I don't feel a part of the school. And I never really did. I never really did. Nobody on campus, you know, none of the statues, none of the stuff around campus looked like me. And then on top of that, I'm pregnant and I got a little baby when I have her. I have her my first semester in college. (laughs) So I'm walking around with this little baby (laughs) in a stroller and everybody's looking at me like, what is she the help? Does she work here? Like, who is this lady? And I'm like, I'm a student. That was one really key example of trying to exist in a system that wasn't designed for me and having to come to grips with that when I finally realized that like, oh, <laughs> this school isn't for me. I think the other example of that is trying to exist in a world of average sized people when you're plus size and mm-hmm. trying to navigate that. I think things have changed a lot since I was younger, but you still see that fat phobia and sort of that, ooh, we don't like fat people kind of, you know, that mm-hmm. implicit bias towards fat people. So There's been those two things that I've thought a lot about and how I have literally just the fact that I'm in that space is the revolution. Just being there is the social justice moment and just pushing through that. So I think
0: that title... (laughs) really, really appropriate, right? Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about the moment you decide that you're going to write a book. How did that happen? How did it come to that place? So it was a combination of being in that
1: room within that crazy meeting and like, what the hell is going on up in here? And I think around that time I was nearing 40 or had just turned 40. And I felt like 40 was a good time to stop and look back at. Like, how did I get here? This person that loves community, that loves public health and social justice, that loves to teach, is a mom. How did I get in this space? So it was a combination of those two things. I also had the wonderful privilege of meeting someone. Her name is Kim O'Hara. She is a book coach. And so I actually took a free writing class random I was doing something and I happened to stop into this class and she was giving us writing prompts and we were writing and she would have us read our writing out to the group she was like you actually write really well and you're funny and you know and she gifted me a free all-day writing course and so I did that and also again they were all laughing at my writing I said well maybe I'm a comedian on the side I don't know (laughs) what this is and so I had talked to her about I want to write a book and she said okay And you know, whenever you're ready. And at the time I wasn't ready. I didn't, you know, of course she charges for her time and things. And and so I wasn't ready, but I think that meeting And in turning 40, I called her and I said, I'm ready. And I was able to sit with her. And the wonderful thing with working with her was she held me accountable. You know, people like me that do five different things at one time teach. I have a full-time job. I'm trying to be a blogger. I'm raising a child. I need somebody to keep me on schedule. So she was able to hear what I wanted to talk about, make it make sense. You know, (laughs) we're going to do it this way. And every two weeks I need a chapter from you. And I'm like, oh okay. (laughs) And that really kept me on track. So that's kind of how that whole thing came to be. Do you see other books in the future? Oh, yes. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. I have two ideas, but I've, I've got to share this one because this one is funny. So I told you about my great-grandmother born 1898. We had always been taught, or she told us, because I knew my great-grandmother up until I was about 19, 20 years old. She told us that she was born in Oklahoma. No, no, no. I go on the census. My great-grandmother is from Tennessee. Oh. My great-grandmother's name is Tommy Piles. That's her maiden name. So I'm looking through Ancestry.com, looking through the census data, and I find her mother... Her mother's name is Molly Timberlake. Really? Guess who else? Who name is Timberlake is from Tennessee? Justin Timberlake (laughs) is from Tennessee. (laughs) So what are the odds, you know, oh, that they're not related? I don't know.
0: I mean So that's book number two. I don't know. I gotta figure this out. So investigating needs to happen there for sure.
1: Right. So I could be like, hey Justin, hey cousin.
0: (laughs) You're probably cousin. Maybe. I mean, it's very possible. <laughs> it's the way true. slavery worked.
1: Was. Exactly. And I think on one of the census records, Molly Timberlake was listed as mulatto. My great-grandmother was listed as mulatto. And of course, you know, after time, Black. But they were listed as mulatto. So I'm like, hmm, it's worth looking into. I know that for sure.
0: <laughs> mulatto. So just a, another little rabbit trail here. So Somebody recently who's from the South, so they still use that word, mulatto, Do I they? guess. I think so. Because somebody, I mean, this was an older gentleman. He called me mulatto, and I was like taken a little back And I was like, should I be offended? I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> right. I don't know either. i don't know. it was interesting. I mean, he was definitely he was probably close to 80. Yeah. So I, I don't know if they still use that word, but he definitely said it. And he didn't say it like it was a bad thing. He said it like it was a fact, like you were mulatto. And I was like, hold oh, hold okay. on. I'm not sure <laughs> if I should be offended or not. I might need to I <laughs> <friend with you. laughs> What's the Urban Dictionary saying these days about that Hi. word? <laughs> so one thing I want to ask you about in relation to the book was, you know, in your work as a community leader, but as a public health professional and an educator as well, what is, has there been one system, whether it be, I don't know, the healthcare system or education that you find has been particularly hostile or ineffective for people of color? Is, is there one that you think is worse than the other? perfectly honest all of them because they
1: all have this foundation of racism and oppression right they're all built on this same system of oppressing people of colors um, and elevating white people really, I think education is probably the biggest one. Criminal justice system, we already know that's a hot
0: mess. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I think I saw it on Twitter. There's the Twitter feed going around that saying, when did you have your first Black teacher or have you ever had a first Black teacher? And it's been crazy to see that most people have not. I had my first Black teacher when I was a junior in high school. Wow. Mr. Mr. Thomas, he was, I had him for two years excellent teacher. I'll never forget him because he was an excellent teacher. He was it. And then I got to college and I took that race, gender and justice class, black teacher. And I took a bunch of classes in like the African-American studies department and those were black teachers. But outside of that department, you didn't really see a lot of professors that were black or even brown, really. Right. It's crazy. I can say I've been
1: truly lucky. My elementary school teachers were all black, every single one of them. The principal was black, everybody in that school. But then again, it was also a parochial school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a little bit different. I remember in junior high school, I had a nice mix, but my science teacher was a black woman. And at the time, that didn't really mean anything to me. But now I'm like, My science teacher was a Black woman. (laughs) And then when I got to college, then kind of to your point, there was really not a lot. I think I had one Black professor when I got to college. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of another rabbit trail, but one thing that always stood out to me when I was an undergrad, and it was even more glaring to me when I went and got my master's degree, but when I was an undergrad, you know, I was in the political science department and there were almost no students of color in that department. Almost none. Okay. I can probably count on one hand the other students in my classes that were also students of color. And if they were students of color, they were probably women. I can really only remember one other student that we were in the degree program together that was a black man. And he was brilliant. Like I used to sit next to him because he was so (laughs) smart. I would be like, what did you think about that? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because he was brilliant. He would say the most insightful things. I would be like, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) what he said (laughs) exactly it just so when you say the education system I can reflect on my own life and see all of the many ways that it feels like our education in the system is failing not just people of color but everyone everyone everyone
1: Absolutely. We see it now with this whole COVID-19. We see it with all of these things that are happening with our fight for our civil rights. People are like clueless. And I'm Mm. like, what? did you go to school? I I am so disappointed in many ways.
0: (laughs) I was just talking to a friend about this the other day because, you know, they know I have a degree in political science. And before I came into podcasting and what I do now, I was actually in politics as a profession. So they were asking me, you know, my thoughts on some things. And I said, you know, the problem that I really see is that in this country, we don't have a basic civic understanding. We, we don't understand how our government works. Right. There's all this misinformation. There's all this confusion. And if you ask me, it's just a way to control everyone. You don't yeah. educate. You don't give even a basic education on how these processes work and how they're intended to work. And then people just believe whatever crazy conspiracy theory they hear because they don't have anything else to rely on. Absolutely. Of course, nobody trusts the government. Why would they? It doesn't matter who's president. Why would they trust it? I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I think that's
1: also something that we see in public health. Oh, you know, get your flu shot. Do these things, and everybody's like, we don't trust you, Mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, it feels funny because people that that I work with are like, why don't they trust us? We're the government. They don't trust us, Mm -hmm. and there have been examples throughout history why they shouldn't trust us. Tuskegee syphilis Experiment. People may not even be able to name that experiment, and they even explain it, but they know that the government at one point in time did some people really wrong and tried to get away with it you know so I think you're right and I also feel like we also don't give our citizens a basic understanding of science yeah you know this whole pandemic I'm like why are you not understanding basic public health or scientific principles about how viruses spread and it's one thing for you know the, the regular folks not to understand it but you have mayors and governors mm-hmm. and things and I'm like wait that's not how
0: this works right. at all. Yeah, it's really, oh God. Like, it's, it feels so overwhelming that they're, <laughs> I can't even deal some days. I'm just like, I am not watching the news. I'm not reading a single article. I just can't today. It's too right. much. Stay in the house. <laughs> exactly. Mind my own business.
1: That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and it's scary though, it's scary. Because again, kind of to your point before, people believe what they believe. And no matter, no measure of facts or data or
0: information that would discredit that, they don't care. Mm -hmm. I do think it comes down to just a lack of basic understanding. I mean, the same friend that was asking me what I thought the other day, one of the questions I asked is, well, what do you know about how the government works? And he goes, I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. Like He started (laughs) to see this. a tiny like that's a raindrop of how the entire process works and truthfully it's not something you learn through middle school high school your basic education you don't right. get that until you get into collegiate level classes and it's taught over a series of like five classes it's not one yeah. class. right 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 So we don't have a basic understanding of how these things work. And if you don't understand how they're intended to work, you can't see when they're not working. You can't pinpoint where the gap is and where the break is. All you can say is like, this isn't working for me. And it's a mystery as to why. Right,
1: right, exactly. And then see, the other side of that for me is, it's actually, it is working like it's supposed to work. It's it's working perfectly. And that's the problem. (laughs) These systems are actually working as they were intended to work, which actually pushes and leaves out a whole host of people that need to be participating in that process. So I think that's the other side of it for me. Like, oh no, no, the criminal justice system. Oh, it's not working right. Oh yeah, it is. It's Mm -hmm. working perfectly for the people that it's supposed to be working for. Now the rest of us out here, we're the ones that get, you know, kind of sucked in and chewed out and spit out into the streets, but these systems weren't designed for us. And so That's why they actually appear not to be working, but they actually are. And that's the problem. It's like, how do we kind of stick a screwdriver in it and kind of like shut it down and make it like malfunction so we can turn it
0: over Mm -hmm. and make it something new? I definitely agree with that. And I think when you don't have the historical context, because most of that is left out of our public education system, what you're given is the philosophical Speech, right? Like philosophically, this is what it's supposed to be. And then you look at a system that says that it was created to align with that philosophy. And if you don't understand that historical concept and how that system, at least on paper, in theory, right, in theory is supposed to work, right? There's so much nuance and complication that there's no way to decipher it, right? And that's why you
1: have this great divide where there's people that are like no no what's wrong everything's fine why are you angry why are you upset all lives matter what's wrong we got that group and we're sitting over here like what what are you talking about this people getting shot in the middle of the street by people that are supposed to protect and serve what are you talking about and they just don't they don't get it or they're just now like wow
0: this is crazy and it's like where have you been for the last right. 30, 40, 50, 60 years? Well, and I think that we have this divide because some people don't see that it's not working for them either. They That's don't, true, They too. don't see. It's not working. It's not working for you either. Like, I'm right. not saying that it's not working for me just because of race. I'm saying that it's not working for you either. Right. <laughs> you don't see it because you align yourself with these folks with this philosophy (laughs) right exactly you you're thinking about this philosophy but they don't care about you either (laughs) right right i I feel that on such a fundamental level I love it. Thank you for the conversation today. You know, before we get out of here, I do want to say to our listeners that I really appreciated your book, Nicole. So I'm so glad that you wrote your story to share. I'm glad that you reached out to me to tell us more about your story. I think the thing that I walk away with from your book specifically is that you know, your story is your story. It's how you got to where you are and why you believe what you believe. But I think at its core, your book is about letting specifically Black women, I mean, this is a book for anybody, I think, but specifically Black women know that there is a collective need for Black women to save yourselves right? Absolutely. Nobody out here is trying to do it. And there's so much power. I think women hold so much power and coming together collectively and and deciding we're going to do it for ourselves as women, right? First, securing yourself first and doing what you need to do to be able to thrive first and then finding a way to bring others along with you. I think at its core, that's what I took away from your book. Yeah, absolutely.
1: You hit it right spot on. And I think that's even why I really thought I need to have Senator Holly Mitchell write this forward, because I think that she also has that same, I don't know if you know who she is, but she has that same sort of sensibility, like, you know, we have to do for ourselves. And then again, we can create that community and we can bring everybody else with us, but we got to get ourselves together first. Mm -hmm. And we don't have to be millionaires. Or you know, super smart or a celebrity to create community and to create change in our in our circles. I think that is really something that meant a lot for me and and was something I wanted to put in the book as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do I do know who Senator Holly Mitchell is because of the Crown Act, right? And the Crown Act was actually passed here in Colorado, awesome as well. And I think you're gonna have to refresh my memory because. Everything before 2020 feels like a really long time ago. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but was Senator Holly Mitchell the first one to introduce the Crown Act? Yes. And I believe she named it. She's the I one that came so. up with the okay. acronym. Yeah. Uh-huh. I thought so, yeah. So It ended up here in Colorado, some version of it, and it did pass late. Awesome. I think the last session. Again, I can't remember anything before 2020, so. Exactly. (laughs) I don't even know what today is. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Nicole, where can our listeners find your book? So my book is on Amazon.
1: Amazon in both the Kindle version and a paperback version, it's at Barnes & Noble on their website as well, which was surprising. I one day Googled myself and I was like, oh. And I, I emailed the publisher lady. She said, yeah, I knew it. I said, well, why you didn't tell me? <laughs> so Barnes & Noble <laughs> and Amazon. And the cool thing, okay, so I was talking to one of my friends, the Kindle version. I was talking to my friend. She said, yeah, I have Alexa read your book to me. I was like, Alexa can read? If you have, what you call it, whatever a the smart thing speaker? is Alexa yeah, she'll read it. She'll read your really? Kindle of book. Yeah, I have I no have, idea. I've never tried that, huh? I, and I had to Google, and I said she's lying. So i <laughs> Said yes, she can read your books to you. I was like, wow. So that's a piece of FYI for for the listeners there. So it's on Amazon and it is on
0: Barnes and Noble. Well, good to know. I'm gonna give that a try. Well, I don't have the Amazon. I have the Google one, but well, I'm gonna see if Google will do it because maybe she can. Yeah, <laughs> I have to read every single person's book this season, so I'm like, I'm a little bit behind. I'm trying to get caught up. <laughs> right? <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> exactly. Thanks again, Nicole, for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. I had so much fun talking to you. I'm like, when are we going to talk again? Tomorrow? Call me tomorrow. (laughs) Anytime (laughs) you want. (laughs) Text a girl. I'm available. (laughs) All right, folks. It's a wrap for now. But... Make sure you head over to Barnes & Noble or Amazon and pick up Pushing Through, finding the light in every lesson. And as usual, we will link in the show notes for you to give you a one-click option. Read this book. It's such an inspiring and uplifting story. And, you know, it's really not judgmental. It's, I think Nicole really does a good job of trying to offer solutions and not from that soapbox place just from a purely, like, let's just try this, y'all. Like, let's, let's make progress. Right. So pick it up, download it, get Alexa to read it to you. I think you're really going to enjoy this book. Now, make sure that you head over to our website or to social media to enter the giveaway, because we are giving away books to listeners this season. So check that out. You have an opportunity to win one of the books from the incredible authors we have on the show right now. So check it out. If you are not subscribed to this show yet, I don't know what you are doing. So make that happen. And Please continue to share this show. That's how we've grown it to over 60 something countries at this point, because our listeners are so loyal, are so amazing, and share this show with other people. So please continue to do that. And thank you. Thank you for the bottom of my heart for your support. Until next time, we out.